He's almost there. He can see the finish line. That's the view from Elliot Kipchoge. You can see the finish line where we are looming into view. On the 12th of October 2019, Kenya's Elliot Kipchoge became the first person to finish a marathon in under two hours, crossing the finish line in one hour, 59 minutes and 40 seconds. History was made and it was a huge milestone for athletics. Less than 200 metres to go. But the moment was less about the achievement as it was about the shoes on Kipchoge's feet, which sparked major controversy. The first man to run a marathon in under two hours. The race itself was an exhibition event, the Ineos 159 Challenge, meaning the record time didn't actually count as an official world record. But the goal was to break the two-hour marathon barrier, and Elliot Kipchoge did it while wearing some groundbreaking prototype running shoes developed by Nike, called Alpha Fly. What makes them unique is that the sole is made of a special rubber called PBAX. This is Dr Bryce Dyer from Bournemouth University. He's the Deputy Head of Department Design and Engineering. Although this kind of technology has been around for a little while, it took really Nike to refine it and make it as effective as they have. PBAX, as it's known in the sports industry, is a flexible material which Nike calls Zoom X Foam, together with two air-filled pods at the front of the sole and a carbon fibre plate in the midsole, these elements combine to provide runners with more comfort and more efficiency, and they basically work like a suspension system. The pods of air compress when pressure is applied, storing and then releasing energy, and this helps athletes in a very specific way. Runners get fatigued, so running is quite hard on the body. From what runners are saying is it actually reduces the shock and the impact. That means with every stride that they're taking, it makes them more effective, more efficient. And it seems also more competitive. The influence of Nike's unique shoes on track and field was enough to lead its governing body, World Athletics, to introduce new regulations. But that hasn't ended the debate on technology's place in sports. This is Moonshot. I'm Christopher Lawson, and over the next two episodes, we're looking at the technologies that are changing sport. Where do we draw the line, and is the very nature of competition under threat? And for this one, I'm handing over to our sports expert, producer James Parkinson. Technology and sports have always had a close relationship. Ever since humans have been taking part in organised competition, we've searched for ways to push the limits and find a competitive edge. And as technology itself has improved, the tension in this relationship has grown. Some advancements have made sports more exciting, while others have altered the performance of a sport entirely. Dr Bryce Dyer. There's been some fabulous examples over the years. Some have been banned and some have remained legal. If we look back through history... Some of the more famous recent examples have been the prosthetic limbs used by Oscar Pistorius. That story formed around his want to compete in both the Paralympic Games and the Olympic Games in the same year. In that case, the legs remain legal, but they did have some restrictions placed against them. Uh, We've had other examples, the javelin, for example, switched between 
relatively basic materials to, to metals, lightweight composites through the 1950s, 60s, 70s to such an extent that the throwing distance became so long that athletes were on the verge of throwing a javelin out of the stadium. Uh, we've had things like the, uh, the brush shoe uh, made by Puma in uh, the 1970s, which is whereby that was a shoe with a unique sole as well that created advantage, and that was outlawed. We've had uh, the Polara golf ball, which was fantastic innovation. It was a golf ball that had dimples of a very unique pattern, and it actually prevented a golfer from hooking or slicing the ball so much. The only problem with that innovation is that you get um, – the good players didn't benefit from the innovation because they were already good, but the poorer players benefited hugely. So that product was outlawed. And that actually raises another idea with technology, whereby when you introduce new technology, it has what we call a revenge effect. And that revenge effect is whereby you get a byproduct or a secondary effect as a result of introducing it, what you call such as reskilling or de-skilling. Reskilling is when a technology changes the way a sport is undertaken, usually for the better. De-skilling is the more controversial effect and often provides an unfair advantage. The self-correcting Polara golf ball Bryce mentioned is an obvious example, and you could argue that Nike's Alpha Fly shoes fit into this category too. The original concept for the shoe came about through a project Nike called Breaking 2, launched in 2016. It was the first experiment of its kind to try and smash the two-hour barrier for the marathon. Breaking the two-hour marathon barrier is impossible. Everyone knows that. Elliot Kipchoge, along with two other elite runners, were brought in for the attempt. This also wouldn't count towards any official records, but it was about redefining what was possible. And to help the athletes, Nike developed a brand new running shoe, the Vaporfly Elite, the predecessor to the Alphafly. A race was held on the 6th of May 2017 under tightly controlled conditions, all intended to maximise the chances of success. Kipchoge finished the race in 2 hours and 25 seconds. It was difficult to tell just how much the Nike shoes contributed to the result, but it soon became clear that there were at least some tangible benefits. In 2018, Kipchoge went on to set a new official world record at the Berlin Marathon while wearing a pair of Vaporflies. He completed the race in 2 hours, 1 minute and 39 seconds. By this time, Nike had released both pro and consumer models of the shoes and the athletics world was beginning to take notice. Here's Bryce. Opinion has been very, very mixed. And the sport as a whole and its governing body has been put in a position whereby they're having to respond to that and try and manage technical innovation as best they can to try and ensure a level playing field as much as they can. And it's not just Elliot Kipchoge who's seen improved results from wearing the Vaporfly and Alphafly shoes. His fellow Kenyan Bridget Kosge set a new women's world record at the Chicago Marathon in 2019. Kosge's time of 2 hours, 14 minutes and 4 seconds was 18 seconds faster than the previous record, which stood for about 16 years and numerous other record times have been posted across athletics, all by athletes wearing the Nike running shoes. These developments have led the World Athletics Council to implement several new regulations for running shoes, both those with and without spikes, which they announced on January 31st, 2020. There's several new rules that World Athletics has implemented. The first one is that the, uh, the sole fitness is limited to 40 millimetres. Now, the sole of the shoe had been getting thicker, so they're limiting stack height. That's one thing they do. 
to limit future performance advantages from that sole alone. Next, shoes must not contain more than one rigid embedded plate or blade of any material. This refers to the carbon fibre plate inside the Nike Vaporflies. Shoes with spikes may have a secondary plate, but only for the purpose of attaching spikes to the sole. Now, the new incarnation shoes, which Elliot Kipchoge wore in his unofficial record-breaking race, were an early prototype. But in February 2020, Nike finally launched the new model onto the market, officially known as the Air Zoom Alpha Fly Next Percent. And they comply with these new rules, featuring a single carbon fibre plate and a sole thickness of 39.5mm. Their timely release also means the Alpha Flyers will be deemed legal for the Tokyo 2020 Olympics in July. An additional ruling from World Athletics states that from April 30th, any shoe must have been available for purchase by any athlete on the open retail market for a period of four months before it can be used in competition. Dr. Bryce Dyer says these regulations will help to even the playing field somewhat, but Nike and the athletes they sponsor are still set to benefit the most. What it has actually done is it's actually slowed the development of shoes down because Nike have basically kicked the door open here and other companies are now going to follow suit. So they've been prudent. They've probably done the right thing here to slow things down. But by limiting the development window to four months doesn't give the other companies a lot of time now to get products out before the Olympics takes place, which is still actually then placing the advantage with Nike-sponsored or endorsed athletes. While the AlphaFly shoes are aiding performance directly, there's a whole other side to sports tech that's giving athletes an edge. And that's coming up after the break. Data analysis and performance reviews are nothing new in sports. For years, professional athletes have used video replays and other methods to improve their own game and inhibit their competitors. But new advancements in wearable technology is taking things to the next level. From a local positioning system with our Clear Sky system, um, that's for everything we do. So if they're doing a running session outdoors, if they're on the courts, that data comes in live in terms of our platform as well. So inside of that, we can set up customise reports, um, we can look at things like how much distance have they done, how many jumps, how much explosive efforts. So every session immediately post we can review and see what they've actually done versus what we've actually planned as well. This is Jamie Bainish. My name's Jamie Bainish, I'm a lead performance analyst at the Victorian Institute of Sport, working with the Melbourne Vixens in Super Netball and our VIS men's and women's hockey programs. The use of GPS technology to track athlete performance has actually been around for a while now, but thanks to companies like Catapult, it's become more accessible. And as Jamie mentioned, Catapult's newest technology can be used indoors as well as outdoors, which makes it perfect for sports like netball or basketball, where this kind of information wasn't previously available. The wearable tech developed by Catapult is called ClearSky. Instead of GPS, it uses LPS, a local positioning system. With this system, we've sort of really been able to, for the last one or two years, been able to quantify what are some of the actual physical demands of, of netball, which um, if we go back a little bit further, is quite hard with an indoor sport. Um, if you look at a, a typical GPS unit, you can lock onto satellites in the sky, whereas indoor, you can't do that. That signal won't go through the roof. So 
with indoor sports, we have receivers that are set around the stadium which give you those reference points like satellites do. So with that piece of technology, it can actually quantify what they're actually doing for us. Athletes are equipped with a small wearable device which transmits data via the receivers directly to a laptop. About the size, or probably a little bit bigger than a, a, the bottle cap, the little clear sky unit, um, and that'll actually fit in the, the back of the training singlets, playing dress or with a vest. Um, and what that unit actually does live is through a receiver will actually come live into our, our laptop, which are capturing through the open field console system. You need at least two or three of those receivers to lock on to the unit in the back. Um, and that's where if you've got, I guess, the more receivers you've got around the court, then the better likelihood and, I guess, better coverage of the unit. Whereas if you had less amounts, if a player turned their back on a receiver, it would be occluded. Um, versus if you've got more of those receivers, you can get one, two, three locking in. And that's how the system is so accurate with that. So the Clear Sky device tracks and records the player's movements. And once that data is captured, it can then be organised and presented in a way that makes it easy to understand. So the learnings from that information can be put into practice. So you've got your laptop set up here. It looks quite elaborate. It's got uh, lots of different tables and graphs and, and numbers and things. Talk me through kind of what we're seeing here and, um, and kind of what's involved. Yeah, so I, I guess the beauty is with, it, with the OpenField um, cloud account, um, if we talk about that data that was coming into the laptop, post-session we can then upload that to our cloud account. So it means in that we can create basic dashboards, basic templates in this system. So when that data is important, we can reference a certain session, a game, and automatically that data will populate into whatever we like. And I guess the really nice thing was the open field. You can make things nice and pretty, which athletes and coaches like. You can make tables, you can make charts, um, you can customise different bands within that, you know, conditional format them, green they've done something right, red it hasn't. Um, so it's a really good advancement in the system that, that Catapult has this that takes a lot of, I guess, in the past, a lot of manual handling and creation of these, whereas now it happens instantaneously as soon as you upload the data. When it comes to elite team sports, it's about looking at every angle to gain an advantage. And everyone involved, from the players to the entire coaching staff, stands to benefit from the wealth of information available. Of course, every sport is different too, so analysing performance through the data means you can narrow in on what's actually important. And it's a little more advanced than your average Fitbit. It could be, you know, things like jumps, accelerations, decelerations, change of directions, and all of that has a big, big impact on how the player can tolerate that load in training and in games, but also, you know, what are the things we need to be getting better at to help them perform at the highest stage. The fact that you can have these numbers and if we can look at, well, what are the demands of in a game that a netballer or a hockey athlete needs to do, it allows our strength and conditioning coaches the information to go like, okay, we know what the demands are. How do we condition them? How do we prepare them to be able to tolerate these and also exceed some of those demands? So it's it's massively influential about how prescription from our SNC coaches evolve and, and what they implement in their programs. Having worked in both amateur sports and with elite professional teams, Jamie says sports technology provides a huge advantage for the pros and in how influential access to performance data can be. If you don't have a tracking piece of technology like that, a lot of it is purely guesswork. So you're not really able to objectively say, yep, I know they did, you know, six, seven kilometres in that session. When you do come into a, a system that has that, it's, um, yeah, it's pretty impressive in terms of, you know, it's like, wow, I didn't know I really had this before, but now I can actually 
be quite objective, look at what we've actually planning. Are they actually achieving that? If they're not achieving that, why? Or if they are, fantastic. How do we progress that? Whereas if you don't have that technology, it's purely guesswork about how you're operating. However, this is also starting to change. Just like Nike's shoe technology is available through consumer models, Catapult have also released a range of more affordable wearable devices, so lower-level teams or individuals can take advantage of performance data. And after this break, we'll explore how data analysis is changing the dynamics of sport. It's not just physical performance that's benefiting from technology like catapults. Data analysis is also having a greater influence on tactics and preparing players to face their opposition. That tactical and strategy side, again, that's not something that hasn't not been around. That's been around for a while. But again, technology in that space is allowing analysts and coaches to be able to do more, visualise more, see more. You also need to be very good at being able to, to filter through and go, OK, well, what are the key elements for a game or, or an upcoming opposition that are relevant to our group that we can focus on? Jamie says the mental approach is crucial in modern sports and technology in this field is helping to develop smarter and more informed athletes. Now a lot of it is is about educating and inform the players about, you know, what's actually happening in a game, you know, how are we playing, what's an opposition doing? Um, and I think that that player education in terms of that developing smarter athletes so when they're on court or on the pitch making the right decisions at the right time and I guess that's the, that's the thing in, in all sport if you're... If you're, a, if you're an athlete and you can always make the right decision at the right time, that's what separates you being from one of the best to, to an average player. Um, and I guess that's the other side of my space is, is it's about empowering athletes and, and equipping them with resources to become smarter and better players um, and helping their decision making. Wearable tech and the advantages it provides has been welcomed with open arms in the sports world. Its use in elite competitions around the globe is really only limited by the budgets of professional teams, athletes and programs. And that's very different to the products like Nike's AlphaFly shoes that have a more direct influence on performance. And that's where ethical issues start to arise. You only sort of probably have to think back to the the full-body swimsuits a few years ago, well, several years ago now, but giving athletes a an unfair advantage it was perceived over other athletes who weren't wearing them so yeah it's a very interesting space about well what's ethically right and what's fair in sport um, when those pieces of technology can make the difference between winning or getting on the podium or not at all. Unsurprisingly performance advantages around sports tech get the most attention but as Bryce Dyer explains there are a whole range of issues that need to be considered. When a new technology is created or innovated the way that stakeholders and academics typically review it or should be reviewing it is there's a series of criteria or effects that it can have safety so if you introduce a new technology how will it you know, will it be safe does it cause harm to the athlete there are also other things such as access so can an athlete access the technology like another athlete can so if we if we pick any technology like running shoes or a bicycle if someone in the US or Australia can access the technology so should an athlete that's in Europe or, or sub-Saharan Africa or anything like that. And if it can't, then arguably that technology should then be reviewed. And there's also cost as well. So is a new technology cost prohibitive? Um, 
you want to make sure that a technology is able to be afforded within reason by any athlete anywhere on the globe. Now, there's always going to be disparity between people because of the different countries and different economic climates they live in. But as much as possible, a piece of technology should be affordable so that everyone has the opportunity to be able to access that uh, fairly uh, within reason. So where do you draw the line? How much tech in sports is too much? Well, Bryce admits it's a difficult balance. I think that balance point has to be determined by us as stakeholders in the speaking to the athletes, the sports governing body and the rest of it. It's really about, again, this vigilance and being aware of where that line should be on a sport-by-sport basis. And it does vary based on the sport. But there are issues that are so large, so controversial, so difficult to discuss that it almost becomes an unmanageable problem. And a good example of that one is if we go back to the the amputee uh, sprinting and running using prosthetic limbs, the problem is is that it's raised ethical questions about where are, are the limits, where does the human being end and the cyborg begin, really? And by allowing that kind of technology, you know, we can now have cybernetic limbs, we can have computer-controlled bionic limbs, not in sport, but in everyday life. And that's now really raised the questions of what is ethically appropriate and ultimately with ethics, that both the great thing and the bad thing about it is there is no right answer. And James Parkinson will be back next week with part two, looking at the technology that's changing officiating in sports. Are video reviews undermining referees and umpires? Or should we be embracing human error? That's next week on Moonshot. Moonshot is hosted and edited by me, Christopher Lawson. This episode was produced, scripted and voiced by James Parkinson. Our theme music comes from the talented Breakmaster Cylinder and our artwork is by Andrew Millist. We'd love to connect with you on social media, so go and find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search for Moonshot Pod. And if you'd love to get your hands on some great Moonshot merch, we've launched a brand new website where you can get merch for all of our Lawson Media shows. It's podmerch.co. You can get t-shirts, you can get stickers, you can get hoodies. There's plenty of items in stock and they are still shipping despite the COVID-19 outbreak. You can find all that at podmerch.co. We'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks for listening.